Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are so glad that you're listening in today. As God's people, we are concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to always get the next podcast. Every year in Alaska, the Iditarod is held. It's a 1,000-mile dog sled race, a run for prize money and prestige. It commemorates an original race, Run to Save Lives. Back in January of 1926, six-year-old Richard Stanley showed symptoms of diphtheria, signaling the possibility of an outbreak in the small town of Nome. When the boy passed away a day later, Dr. Curtis Welch began immunizing children and adults with an experimental but effective anti-diphtheria serum. It wasn't long before Dr. Welch's supply ran out, and the nearest serum was in, uh, I'm not going to say it right, Nanana, Alaska, 1,000 miles of frozen wilderness away. Amazingly, a group of trappers and prospectors volunteered to cover the distance with their dog teams. Operating in relays from the trading post to trapping station and beyond, one sled started out from Nome while another carrying the serum started from Nanana. Oblivious to frostbite, fatigue, and exhaustion, the Teamsters mushed relentlessly until after 144 hours in minus 50 degree winds, the serum was delivered to Nome. As a result, only one other life was lost to the potential epidemic. Their sacrifice had given an entire town the gift of life. And today, we look at a passage of scripture where faith is on display and a team effort is is shown to us to bring a paralyzed man to the feet of Jesus. So let's go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your your sins are forgiven, or to say... Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, and he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. Amazed everyone, this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. Wow. A man lowered through the roof to get to Jesus. I have to admit that as a child, I was always more fascinated with the roof than the healing. They got a hole in the roof and lowered a man in so he could get to Jesus. I don't see anyone cutting holes in the roofs to get into our churches, but that's not really the point. We are the ones, we are to be the ones willing to put holes in the roof so that people can get to Jesus. So as we look at the story, 
it's telling us about the divinity of Jesus, that God can, only God can forgive sins. And it's about the power of Jesus to heal and forgive. It's a story about faith, whether we are willing to risk a step of faith or not. And it's a story about our willingness to draw near to God and help others draw near to God. I'd ask you to take a moment with me as we look at each of the characters in the story. Are you willing? And am I willing? That should be the question we're asking is, are we willing to put ourselves in their places? So we can see the ways that we're succeeding in faith and the ways we're struggling in faith. So there's several different roles, but let's look at the first one, probably the, one of the most obvious ones, the character of the paralyzed man. The paralyzed man, who does rename la- nameless in this story, is the one who is healed. He's healed physically. This is clearest to us and what we naturally see as a miracle, but he's also he- healed spiritually. His sins are forgiven. This paralyzed man was asked to live by faith, and we are too. Yet he had to overcome a lot of obstacles, some of which we can guess at and some of which we know. These obstacles are the same to our own faith. This paralyzed man had to overcome the obstacle from feeling insignificant to significance. This man is nameless in the story, and and to be fair, he's not alone. Jesus is the only named character. Some people are faceless in the crowd, but this man knows insignificance deeply. He is dependent on others. He cannot take himself to Jesus. Others must carry him. And when he arrives where Jesus is, the crowd does not see him as important enough to be let in to see Jesus. I think we can venture to guess that this man was accustomed to insignificance. He cannot make his own way in life. He cannot produce. He cannot contribute. I am sure he often feels the burden that he places on others. This man not only feels insignificant, but also unwanted. We can know this by the way Jewish culture viewed sickness in Jesus' day. If you were stricken with illness, it was thought that you had committed a sin and were judged by God. That is to say, if you were sick like this, the Jewish people said God didn't want you. Others would know to keep their distance so that your unwantedness would not rub off on them. This man had to overcome the barrier of insignificance and being unwanted, and I've often wondered if he was glad for his friends to carry him or if he resisted them, maybe thinking, no, don't trouble yourselves, I'm not really worth it. In this story... The man moves from seeing himself as insignificant to knowing how precious he is to God. He is wanted. And for many of us, we have trouble believing that believing what God sees in us, that he wants us, that we are special to him, but he does want us. Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us this, God speaks to Israel and he speaks to us and he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So the man had to move across the boundary of insignificance to significance, but he also has to move from a boundary of blame to a boundary of trust. At least I know that we can see trust. He has to trust in Jesus at the the end. But I'm going to guess, if you'll permit me, that he had to move through some other things that he was feeling as well. Perhaps the man was excited to see Jesus, excited to receive healing, but perhaps he was angry at God. We don't know how long he was paralyzed. Was it recent in life or long ago? 
whenever we face suffering, for however, however long it is, if we face it and it is deep enough, we will eventually end up at one of the most difficult questions of life. And it's one of the shortest questions where we say, why? Why did this happen? And why me? Why did God allow this? It doesn't take too much of a step to go from why and why God to it's your fault, God. When we desperately want answers to our pain, we face a choice. We can blame God or trust God. And this is where faith becomes very important. I don't know if the man blamed God or was angry with him, but by the end of the story, he's trusting God and he's stepping in faith. So, what about you? Are you angry at God? Are you blaming him or doubting him? Jesus is asking you to take a step of faith. Blaise Pascal says this, In faith, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. So we've got to take, make a decision and take a step and realize that sometimes we are doubting because we want to doubt. V. Raymond Edmonds says this, Never doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. I think that is good advice because it is so easy when we are in the dark moments of life to forget what God has done at the best of times. Keep trusting in that. Another obstacle the paralyzed man had to overcome was from the known to the unknown. It is human to fear the unknown, even if the unknown is good for us. This man knew what was expected of him that he was to be a paralyzed man. He was going to have people wait upon him. He knew what he was capable of, not much as a paralyzed man. And he knew if he was healed, everything in his life would be changed. For the better, for sure, but it would be change. He'd have to work. He'd have to learn a trade. He'd have to contribute to the community. He'd have to help others who were struggling the way that he had. Now, you might say, I'm stretching things. Do we really know if he was afraid of this? He, he should have been excited. Oh, the many times I've seen a person shy away from living boldly for God because they're not sure that they can be good or holy or spiritual. We're often worried about not living up to what we think others expect of us, even what God expects. We sometimes fear the unknown. But we need to trust. Following Jesus demands something different from us than we're used to. We have to trust him. The man also had to move from his way to God's way. That's one of the puzzling things about the story. If you were injured, let's say you'd broken a bone and you went to the doctor. As you waited for the doctor, you felt the pain and you desperately wanted relief. I need to get help. This hurts so badly. And you just want the doctor to, to come in and, and make things better. And, and so the doctor does arrive and enters the room and, and she enters and she looks you in the eye and says, I see the problem, relax, I can fix this. And then says to you, your sins are forgiven. What? My sins? Take a look at the broken bone. That's what hurts. Are you crazy? I came here to get treated. I think I need a second opinion. Oh, your sins are forgiven. Oh, how much, is you, how much do you charge for that? Our paralyzed man is carried to Jesus. They cut a hole in the roof to get him close enough to Jesus. He's lowered into the house. No one could ignore his presence. It had to be a moment uh, that everybody just was waiting to see what was going to happen. Watching the roof get opened right up, feeling the dust and the thatch fall upon you as you're wondering what's going to happen next. This is it. The moment when the man's life will be changed forever. 
He won't need to be carried anymore. He'll be able to, to live life to its fullest. And Jesus says, not you're healed, but your sins are forgiven. What a moment. The man came for healing his way, and he received restoration God's way. This is very difficult for us. We like to tell God how he's supposed to work. And when he does not follow our directions, we often question how good he really is. And this man must choose to believe that Jesus has forgiven him of his sins, and that that word, with that word, he can now stand up and walk. Max Lucado says this, Faith is not the belief that God will do what you want. It's the belief that God will do what is right. (laughs) That's a lot to think about right there. Martin Luther says this, Faith is a free surrender and a joyous wager on the unseen, unknown, untested goodness of God. I love that first part. Faith is a free surrender, a surrender to God. We have to say, you know what, my way isn't really the way that's best. It's God's way that I need to depend upon. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 tells us this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We are the paralyzed man. When we read this story, we are to see ourselves in his position, and we are asked to take a step of faith to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. But let us now look at some of the other characters of the story. There's the crowd, and each of us are a part of that crowd. Sometimes we like being in the crowd because we can disappear. Not much is asked of you if you're one of many in a crowd. The crowd is largely passive. It watches others and takes credit for what others do. Crowds are also very powerful. A crowd can celebrate a wonderful moment. We can all recall the celebration of a game-winning shot, a championship victory, hard-fought for, the applause of a performance. The crowd can lift a person up, but a crowd can also tear a person down. As a child, I was terrified of standing in front of a crowd. I remember in middle school having to give a five-minute speech. I felt sick in my stomach. How am I going to do this? I hate speaking in front of people. All I could think of was how bad of a job I was going to do and how no one wanted to hear what I had to say. I managed to deliver that five-minute speech in two minutes flat. I went fast. And you know what? I got a poor grade on that, and I did not care. All I knew was I didn't want to stand in front of people and talk ever again. I was never going to do something like that for a living. I guess God had something else in store. In our story, the crowd is a barrier. That's how they're tearing the man down, though maybe they're not thinking about it. They do not let the man in to see Jesus. This is negative. But they also celebrate his healing. They didn't have anything to do with his healing, so they're passive. So what about you and me when we find ourselves in the crowd? I would ask you to do this. Resolve not to disappear. 
not to be passive, not to be negative, especially when it comes to the things of God. We should each of us be the cheerleaders of those who are trying to draw near to God. Be the crowd that makes it easy for people to step forward and testify about what God is doing in their lives. And I can add on to my story. In middle school, I was terrified to speak in front of people, and and that stayed throughout high school. But I remember my junior year of high school, the night that I became a Christian. I was on a youth retreat, so there are many of us teenagers there, and I had received Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. It was during the worship element of that night. So, it was sort of a private moment in a crowded room for me. After worship, everybody gathered together to give people an opportunity to share if they had made a decision for Jesus. It was a big group of people, and I didn't want to stand up and speak. Public speaking wasn't my thing. And I thought, well, I'll just embarrass myself. But I thought that I should say something because of what Jesus had done in me. So after a bit, I gathered the courage and I stood up and I told the group that I had become a Christian. And several of the other boys howled joyfully. I remember one jumping up and others followed and they ran and they gave me a hug. I didn't even really know them as friends, but they were. They were so excited to celebrate. They turned a scary moment, speaking in front of a group, into a joyful moment. Be the crowd that encourages and lifts up others. Never forget the power you have when you are in the crowd. Another group of characters in the story are teachers. The teachers of the law, they're not pleased with Jesus. They believe, and rightly so, they believe that God only and only God can forgive sin. The problem is they just don't realize that Jesus is God. They can't see it yet, but he's sharing with them that he is divine. There are three warnings that we can learn from from the teachers of the law. First, they act as though they're the holders and defenders of the truth. The problem is, is the truth does not need defending. They act like gatekeepers, letting people into and keeping them away from the truth. Oh, he's worthy and, and that person's not worthy. The teachers really need to be people who live under the truth in submission to it. A second thing about these teachers we can learn is they act with secret thoughts. The text tells us that they they thought their judgment in their minds. Who is this man to forgive sins? Only God can do that. Don't do that. Don't have secret thoughts in your minds. It is a relationship killer to harbor hidden thoughts and judgments against someone. Sure, we may have thoughts we keep to ourselves, but to harbor thoughts against someone or judgments against some someone is different altogether. When you keep secret thoughts against someone, you allow bitterness to grow. You allow a divide to widen between you and that person. And when you harbor those secret thoughts against a person, you devalue them. They don't even know what you're thinking And so there's nothing they can do to even fix it. Don't allow those secret thoughts to grow up into your mind and into your life. Thirdly, these teachers of the law, and maybe we can be a little gracious with them because they don't know that Jesus is God, but they are ultimately telling God what he can and cannot do. And that's a dangerous place to be in. They don't know that Jesus was God, but they're certain that he was wrong. There's very little surrender in their thoughts, and we are all in a dangerous place when we are trying to tell God what he can and cannot do. Don't do that. Another group to consider are those that carried the paralyzed man to Jesus. Four friends. 
I call them friends, but maybe they were strangers. I don't know. Maybe they never met him before. But they did the work that friends would do. These friends, these four men, were willing to overcome any barrier to get this man to the feet of Jesus. They became his legs. They overcame the crowd. They dug through the roof. And in case you're wondering, houses in Capernaum are built in such a way that they have mud and thatch roofs that need replacing every year before the winter rains. So it's not a tremendous amount of property damage. It was easily fixed and replaced. Don't picture them chopping through shingles or tile or even through a stone roof. But their actions are still extreme to dig through the roof to get this man to Jesus. I want to encourage you to imitate these four friends. And we need to be a team of believers working to carry those who need to meet Jesus, to get to him. So here's something about those four friends, some things about those four friends that I think we can imitate. They had faith that empowered the paralyzed man's faith. I am certain that the paralyzed man was able to have faith in Jesus to get up and walk because the four friends had faith first. They believed they could get the man to Jesus. They believed that by getting the man to Jesus, his life would be changed. They kept on believing to the very moment the man was set in front of Jesus. We need to have faith like that. Faith when others do not have faith. How else will they see and understand what faith is and what it's like and how to practice it? Second thing about these four friends who brought this man to Jesus is they were willing to tear down barriers to get the man to a place of faith. We've already talked about how these four friends were willing to overcome any obstacle to get this man to Jesus, and we can learn from this. Please remember that sometimes a person needs lifted out of an emergency before they can really hear the gospel. This man needed to be brought to Jesus. He needed to be healed from his from being paralyzed but there are others who need a roof over their head they need a meal or a wound that's bandaged they're in an emergency and they need to get out of it before they can hear clearly one thing the pandemic has reminded me of is that we are not at our best in emergencies or when we're under stress especially when it's prolonged and we're not sure how to get ourselves out so we can come alongside those that we are trying to carry to Jesus, and we can begin tearing down obstacles and emergencies that keep them from hearing Jesus clearly. Now, if you'll permit me, this is a little bit of a departure from the text, except for I think we can be those four friends to encourage and bring someone to faith and build them up. But there's a way we can do this that's not really mentioned in the text, but I think is good for us to hear. We don't see the four friends doing this. But it goes hand, hand in hand with what they're doing. And I mention this because we've been talking with, I've been talking with our elders and, and we've been talking about how our church can be more intentional with mentoring relationships. And mentoring is a great way to be like these four friends to come alongside someone and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus. One of the best ways you can help someone and build them up in Christ is to mentor. And it's not as hard as you think. Mentoring is really simple. It's really this. It's regularly meeting with another mature believer to talk about your walk with Jesus. I'm going to say that again, because I think sometimes we make mentoring very complicated, but mentoring is regularly meeting with another mature believer to talk about your walk with Jesus. It doesn't have to be harder than that. 
You don't have to have a special skill set. You don't have to be perfect with all the answers. Jen Johnson says this, Have people in your life that will chase you and come after you with love when you are struggling and not at your best. And that's part of what mentoring is, someone who's going to stick with you. It does need to be regular, maybe daily. That's a lot. So maybe weekly or monthly. If you have a special bond with the person and your trust is very free with them, maybe you can meet every other month or once a quarter at a special time. You just have to know that you can count on that person in a regular way. Maturity is needed. You need a guide, someone who's traveled the path before you have. You need to vocalize, speak. There's really there's real power in saying how you think you're doing and what you're struggling with in your faith. Silence keeps those unhealthy secret thoughts moving around in your head. And you've got to be real. That is, you've got to be honest. You've got to be frank, blunt with how you're doing and open to hearing truth when you want to have a problem helped with or corrected. Beyond that, a mentoring relationship can unfold in any number of ways. You can get together together to pray or you can have a cup of coffee. You can go to a restaurant and share a meal or mentor each other on the basketball court or shopping at the mall or fishing or crafting or working on a project together. You can meet before work or at the close of the day. You can meet in a workshop or a beauty salon or even on a hunting trip. But the thing with mentoring is you meet regularly. There's maturity. There's talking out loud about what's going on and you're real with one another. That's a great way to be like those four men carrying the paralyzed man, helping him to faith, helping him to grow. If you want to mentor someone or be mentored, I'd love to hear from you. We're trying to get this going a little more in our church. There's one final character in the story we need to hear about, and that's Jesus. Jesus forgives sin. He heals this man, restoring him to God. Now, we cannot forgive sin, not the way Jesus does. But there's some that Jesus does in this story that we can do. Jesus sees the value in the paralyzed man and of his friends. He sees sin as a problem to be solved instead of something to be repulsed by. He gives grace freely. He sees the potential where others see worthlessness and inconvenience. I am glad that Jesus sees the value in each of us. And we need to learn to see that in others. We need to be like this for others. So today we're being asked to recognize the divine Christ. He is our forgiveness of sins and our redemption. We are each the paralyzed man needing to trust in Jesus, but we're also to help others get near to Jesus. Learn from the crowd. Don't be like the teachers. Be like the friends. And from Jesus, resolve to do everything you can to encourage and bring others to the feet of Jesus. One last quote on faith that brings home the need to do this now. Eugene Peterson says this, The only opportunity you will ever have to live by faith is in the circumstances you are provided this very day. This house you live in, this family you find yourself in, this job you have been given, the weather conditions that prevail at the moment. That is the moment, that is the day, that is the time you have to show faith. There is no better time than right now to live for Christ. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for seeing our worth when we cannot. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for our sins. Lord, strengthen our faith in you right now, today. And help us to be those who would strengthen others and encourage others and build up others, that we would have faith when others do not, that we would overcome barriers for others so that they could know you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.